Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember I'm only as hip as my guest. I have to tell you something, people. The other night, since I moved back, you know, I figured I grew up back east, but I've been away for 20 odd years. I didn't think I'd encounter snow this early. But the other night, on Saturday, actually Saturday morning, it starts snowing, and it keeps snowing. So me and Joanne decide we want to just get a pizza. So I call, and the deliver will take like an hour and a half, because everyone's calling to deliver. So I walked a few blocks, and I'm going to tell you something. I forgot how miserable it is when you walk in the cold and the damp of the snow. I came back, my, my gloves were covered. It was just awful, and I can't believe I thought the snow would start probably in January, but we already got some, and I'm telling Joanne today, I said, you know what, we should we should have stayed in California. Anyway, I have a great show today, a uh, very uh, talented guy who is on the road right now with a Trans-Siberian Orchestra, and I know his other band, the Supergroup, who I've had a few of the guys on, Sons of Apollo, I believe is starting a tour, I know they're playing in New Jersey in February, I believe, in Asbury Park, but my guest is Jeff Scott Soto. How you doing, Jeff? I'm doing great, Coop. Now, Pretty good. Yeah, now, where are you at right now? I know you're on the road, because I know there's two different uh, TSO yeah. tours, I believe. Yeah, well, we're, we're in Birmingham. We have uh, two days off in Birmingham, and uh, we're, we're at the midway point of uh, wrapping this tour. And, yeah, there's, there's two of us. We're the West Coast representation of TSO, and there's an East Coast one. that Basically, they do the, uh, the 13 colonies, and we do the rest of the country. So it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of funny how we're the West Coast band, but we're going to be in Florida in a few days. It is crazy. Now, how'd you get involved with them? I mean, I, I want to talk about your career, but you have two great, pro- well, the Sons of Apollo is a great project, but how did you get involved with TSO yeah. and how long have you been singing with them? And did they come after you because you have a really good voice or how did that all happen? Because they're, they're legendary. Uh, a little bit of, of the above. Um, I've known Al Petrelli for, oh, I think we're going on 27 years now. I met Al in Sweden when I was doing a, a gig with Talisman at a festival. And he, <laughs> I'm sorry, he was with Alex Cooper. And we met after the show. We, we broke bread, and uh, we've been friends ever since. Fast forward to 2007, when this thing was just, it, it was still kind of in the infancy stages as far as the touring was concerned, because they, I think they just they started touring in, uh, in 99, but it didn't really start blowing up until, like, say, 2001. So about six years that they, they were already, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, in 2001, right when it was about to blow up. I saw Petrelli again. I hadn't seen him in a pack of years. And he told me, yeah, I'm doing this thing, Trans-Siberian Orchestra, blah, blah, blah. On paper, I'm thinking, man, this, this, what a weird thing. You know, they're, they're mixing storytelling with classical and, uh, and, and old Christmas classics and, and putting heavy metal guitars behind it. They're like, oh, good luck with that. It sounds like you're going to be playing the, the nearest local theater. <laughs> but no, I didn't realize this thing was blowing up as I spoke. And then again, fast forward to 2007 when I just got let go from Journey. I got a call from Al, not even two or three weeks after it happened, and uh, said, listen, my, my, we're in the studio now, and my boss, Paul O'Neill, wants to meet you. We've, we've tried out every singer on the planet for a particular character, a particular voice that's on this new album, and we were listening to some of your stuff, and he thought your voice might be perfect for this, so flew me out to Tampa. They, they tried me out on a couple songs, and I ended up singing on that Nightcastle album, and, and I started touring with him in 2008, so this is my 10th my winter tour with him. But I've done other things because we do extracurricular tours, like uh, spring tours. We do for uh, we, we've done we've been in Europe a couple times. So overall, it's uh, my involvement with the band is this is my tenth year and my tenth tour. Now it's it's a 
big production. I mean, it must be amazing to sing, and it must be amazing because I guarantee you, it's one of those bands that people probably come back every year for Christmas. Because I mean, I saw you're playing in Philadelphia this weekend, and you're playing a day. They're playing. You guys play two shows at at concert halls. You never see that, so it must be just such a, a, a just a like a cult follow. They just must love you guys. Basically, how they, they always talk about TSO. Um, it's <coughs> excuse me, a little tickle in my throat. It's it's just one of those things that you you, you meet somebody in the street. They say, "What band you play?" But you go Trans Siberian Orchestra. I go, "No, no, never heard of it." And then you go, "Yeah, you know this song." Da, 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 da. Oh, of course, I know. Oh, I love that band. So it's, it's just one of those things, you know. It's uh, it, it works and it works in a big way. It gives me. It gives me something to do the two months out of the year that everything's usually quiet because November, December, there's not really much going on in, in terms of tours and, uh, and and music. It pretty much just kind of shuts down for the year. So this is another outlet for me, and I'm just more than thrilled and, and I'm proud to be a representation of the trans Orchestra. After all these years, they've been doing everything, and, and just the fact that they want me involved in this, it's, uh, it's a great uh, validation of what I do. Now, how does it... Uh, affect your feeling during the Christmas season because you're around Christmas every night and people are just decked out. What is the actual Christmas day like for you? Are you sitting there going, man, you know what? I've been Christmasing for like two months. Yeah. No, you know what? It's uh, it, it's like any other Christmas. We've, for 10 years now, I've spent Christmas on the road with these guys. So they've become my extended family. And and we do we do have the big Christmas dinner, the, the gift exchange, and all that stuff. So it, it truly isn't that much different than being at home, aside from the fact that I save a lot of money on presents. Um, it's it's just a great thing to to be able to work through this time of year and bring so much joy to these people because it, it becomes a tradition for them, for the actual people coming to the shows. This is when it truly feels like Christmas to them. So as far as I'm concerned, this. There's no such thing as being Christmas out. Okay. Now, now you've been. I, I heard you. I read actually. You started a band when you were like around twelve. What got you into music? I and mean, was there a lot of music around your household as a little kid? Did you want to sing? Was there certain people you listened to and really dug? I mean, how did this whole career start? I, I've been singing as long as I can remember talking. I, I've always. I, I saw Michael Jackson when the Jackson Five first hit. And that, to me, was the the antithesis of what I wanted to do, what I wanted to be when I was older, or even at the age that I was starting to sing. I, it was a natural gift that I got from my mother and father that I could sing. I knew how to carry melody, and and I, I knew I just naturally knew what was going on. And that's you know that's one of the things when you when you're taking piano lessons or guitar lessons when you're young, if you don't have it instinctively and naturally, you can take thousands of lessons and spend just so much money on them you're not going to get it unless you naturally have a, a, a knack for it. So luckily I had the knack for it because we certainly didn't have the bankroll for for any kind of lessons. And just through the years, I, I, I honed in on it. I My my teacher was basically the radio. It was all the stuff that I loved listening to when I was growing up. And it was just a natural thing for me to want to someday front a band. The first band I fronted was, I, it was just by accident because I was actually the keyboard player and singing backgrounds. And the very first gig we were playing was at my junior high school. The, the, the singer didn't show up. He got busted trying to skip school. And we're, we're literally setting up. We had no idea he wasn't coming because we didn't have text or, or uh, cell phones or anything. And no, no way of knowing that 
he wasn't on his way. So the bell rings, he's not there. Jeff, you're the singer. I'm like, what? And they, I just got thrust as the singer. And from that day forward, didn't look, didn't look back. I became the permanent singer from, from that band and, and every band that I was in from that point on. It just, I, it, I knew it was in me. I knew I wanted to do it. And so at the age of 12, I was off and running. That's amazing, you know, at 12. I mean, most of us are, you know, figuring out to play Little League and you're, you're fronting a band. I mean, it's just, it shows, <laughs> I mean, you have to have a dedication. And that's what a lot of people say. You know, so many musicians you talk to, they've been doing it all their lives. And people go, God, that guy's really good. It's like, well, yeah, they've been, they've been kicking it since, you know, as you said, a little kid. Now, when you were like 12 and 13, yeah. Who were some of your influences? What was what was the music? Because we're around the same age. What was the music that you liked? I mean, what did you turn on the radio and go, man, this really blows me away? And was it rock and roll after Michael Jackson? But when you're like in your it, teens, it certainly, absolutely was not rock and roll. I could not stand that sound. I couldn't stand the hard rock guitars. All my friends in, in grade school and then uh, middle school would listen to Ted Nugent and uh, Led Zeppelin and Cheap Trick, and I, I thought this stuff was all noise. I couldn't stand it. Um, I listened to only R&B. I listened to a lot of pop music. I, you know, it was basically Motown, the Bee Gees, anything that was pop and, and popular in the uh, top 40, that's what I was into. And it truly wasn't until I saw and heard Toto for the first time because Bobby Kimball was probably the whitest black guy or the blackest white guy, if I may, as far as the voice was concerned. Bobby Kimball sounded like a black dude, a soul brother, singing with hard rock guitars under them with the song like Hold the Line. And you just go, my God, listen to the way they merge these two sounds and these two influences together. And that was the beginning for me to, to actually realize you can marry the, the ideal of hard rock and soul music. And then, of course, Journey was the next one that, that came into play because Steve Perry was so into Motown and he grew up seeing Sam, Sam Cooke and all that stuff. And he brought that influence and blended into Journey sound. And so that's where I was off and running with the rock stuff. And then... <laughs> my older brother, he was already into rock stuff, and where I where I couldn't stand it before, now I was starting to wean into it, which got me into the bands like Van Halen, and then eventually Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, and then I I totally fell into the whole heavy metal bug. So it was I never let go of that early influence of the the whole R and B funk uh, soul thing, even when I got into the metal thing, and it's it I just kind of I was one of those weird uncool kids that I actually said I love Prince while my buddies were listening to Metallica. Back then, it wasn't cool to be to cross over to other genres and other things. So I basically kept to myself, and I just moved forward with what I was doing musically. Now, is, is there, and at your, in your younger part of your career, was there a different style from singing? I mean, you said you infused the heavy metal with your blues background, but was is there a different style in singing a blues song and a metal song? Is, I mean, is there a different vocal range, or how does that work? Oh God, yes! It's it's a completely different approach altogether, and that's that's what I loved about it. And I love the fact that I can adapt to both. And that's I was just talking with our uh, our storyteller narrator in uh, TSO about that last night. I said it's it's a, he, he he sees me going nuts listening to like really heavy music. I, I can listen to like Meshuggah or or uh, um, Periphery or something in that vein, and then I'll throw on some old James Brown or or just something that Terrence Trent Darby, and he goes, man, it's crazy how wide your musical variety broad is so broad, and it's so, it's so ridiculous. You never hear somebody listen to that heavy music, listen to R&B, and vice versa. It's just the way I was, it's the way I wanted it. 
Now, as you're singing, when does you one of your first bigger breaks was with Ingve Malmsteen? How did that come about? Had you been in LA for a while, or how did that whole meeting come? And you were, I believe, you were sort of pretty young still when that happened. Yeah, well, I was uh, 18, and my original band broke up in LA. So uh, a buddy of mine in, in Colorado said there's a there's a top 40 band looking for a singer, and they were actually really good. So I went, I just went out to uh, check them out. I had nothing to lose, and I was a, I was a bit depressed. My band broke up. I didn't want to go looking for a new band in L.A. So I moved to Colorado for a little bit, joined this top 40 band. We were booked like crazy at the beginning. We, it was a great band, you know, just doing all covers, Kiss, Crocus, Van Halen, all that stuff, all the stuff for the times. And, um, and and then after a few months, the band just stopped getting booked, and there was alcoholic issues. There was a little turmoil, and the, the band split up. I'm like, okay, now what, what am I going to do? I guess I'll just go back to L.A. and start over. And this was about eight months later, and it wasn't uh, – We literally, we were sitting at a friend's house a couple nights before I was heading back to L.A., and I was watching MTV, and I noticed they, there was a, an ad on MTV that Ingmay Malmsteen had left – Alcatraz was looking for a band and looking for a singer. So uh, my friends talked me into sending my tape in. I don't know how or why, but I was only 16 on the demo I sent in. And lo and behold, the rest is history. I, I got the audition, and uh, after three weeks of working with Ingmay in his home studio, I got the gig. Now, what is that like playing with someone, you know, you're a young guy, and he's had such a, you know, the, the once again, a cult-like following. You know, you know once again, you talk to people... Uh, someone walking down the street you say you ever heard of Ingve Malmsteen most people haven't but then the people who do are right. fanatical what was that like being a young guy I mean I know it was his first two albums but he had to be getting gaining some right. speed what was that like for you being such a young age and sitting there and going holy crap you know I'm like I'm I'm a part of something I'm you know I'm just not playing in a cover band now I'm a part a part of something well I was already a massive fan of Ingve I knew him from the band Steeler and then, of course, the Alcatraz thing. And so I I was always playing Yngwie to a lot of... I, I turned a lot of people on to Yngwie because I was just already a big fan. So even just to meet him was a big deal for me. Even if I didn't get the gig, to be able to go into the studio and audition for him, it, I was thrilled. It wasn't like, who is this guy? I never heard of him. And uh, if I don't get the gig, no big deal. I was really stoked just to even meet him. Um, so, yeah, clearly <coughs> it was a big deal for me. It, it meant a lot asked and, and, and brought into the uh, into that particular fold and and I never realized that we would be creating history I mean to this day when you meet when I meet somebody after a show or in, in whatever walk of life that knows who I am they'll remind me hey when I was a kid I loved those first two Ingway albums and you were such a great singer and such a everything about it just reminds me that we left an, an imprint that's just going to be it's, it's going to be endless. It's going to be long before, or I'm sorry, long after I'm gone. Now, how does one become, like, how do you learn the chops to be a lead singer? Because lead singer is very captivating. And when you're with someone like Ingve, who's, you know, a captivating guitarist, how do you, I mean, does that just come naturally? Do you go by instinct? What makes you be able to just go up and control a stage and control an audience? Because you're the person we relate to when we go see a live show. Well, everybody's got their influences, and that's a major factor. I mean, you, you don't just you don't just wake up and and you're able to actually hone in a, a, an audience and, and keep them entertained and keep them interested in the actual show. 
a lot of where I got my, I guess, stage antics or persona was, again, it was just influence and, uh, and inspiration. I, I love David Lee Roth as a front man. I love Freddie Mercury as a front man. I love Prince as a front man. You take those three factors, you blend them together, you have the, mo- you have the ultimate front man. Of course, I'm not, I'm not the ultimate front man, but I took enough bits from all those guys and I injected into what I wanted to do and injected to what I felt would work for me as a front man. And, and I just, through the years, you just hone in on it. Some things look stupid or goofy. Other things look really cool. You got to know how to differentiate. Too. Now, when you're sitting there with Ingve, do you guys go on a big tour or what was, what was the live performances like? Yeah, we, we started off, um, a bunch of big shows in Japan, and then we did a, a club tour in the U.S. with Talis, Billy Sheehan's band, opening for us. And then, uh, and then I left the band. It was a situation where I didn't feel like it was a growing situation for me or any of us in the band. I, I knew if I was going to prosper in this business, I had to actually get away from Ingvay because we all felt it was going to be something that we'd be growing together and until we were actually together. And then we realized that the, the whole idea and ideal that the record company and the management had was for Ingbe's name to grow, and we were basically just puppets or hired guns to uh, just kind of get the job done. And I, I had a little more hope for the latter. I, I wanted I wanted something that was going to be all for one, one for all, and it, that wasn't it. Well, so, I mean, that's a, for back then, for being a young guy, that's a very ballsy move. It's great on your part. It gives you a lot of credit just for the fact that, you know, most people would sit there and stay with it. You know, they'd sit there and go, okay, I have a gig. So you leave. Now, what do you, where do you go? What, what, what are you focusing on, and how does that start to develop? Well, I only left initially because I got an offer to, uh, to start a band with Rudy Sarzo and Tommy Aldridge. Uh, it was early 85, or, yeah, with we were talking about early 85 so i left in may of 85 after the uh, the us tour with Ingmate. and it was just one of those things that didn't work out the guys they didn't know what they wanted musically every time they had a new singer or a new guitar player in the fold their whole ideal would change the, the sound would change when i joined they had a guitar player already and they he was writing the material but he didn't work out while I was there, and we, when we got a new guitar player, he came with a whole new sound that didn't work for me, so then I left, and it, it was just musical chairs until they finally ended up with uh, Tony McAlpine and Rob Rock, and they made an album called Project Mars. Um, at that point, I, I just moved on with my life, okay, start a new band, try to get something going based on the Yngwie Foundation, couldn't get much going on, and I actually got invited to rejoin Bay because the guy that replaced me, which was Mark Bowles, I guess was uh, the, the things weren't working out with him. So I rejoined Bay again in '86. And so they were playing that. Now, then you end up being a talisman. How did that come about? Because you were with them for a while. Oh, no, at that point it, it was just for one tour. I left again in '87, and then I was uh, I hit the ground running. Everything that I've done to date was was. Basically, from that, uh, from jumping uh, January '87. So yeah, it was. Uh, I, I never looked back from then. There were a couple near misses where I, they were trying to get me back into the fold, but um, I stayed out of that that whole situation and just continued my own path. 
Now you've done solo work too. You've done some a lot of solo albums. How do you? I mean, how is that when you're creating a solo album different than being part of a band? What is your? Do you have to wear all the different hats? Do you get involved in the producing or what is a? Uh, and when, why did you? I mean, not why you probably always wanted to do your whole life, but when you produced your first, you sang on your first solo album. How did that come about? Um. Well, I've always been very self-sufficient in the studio. I've there was a time where I stopped wanting to work with people in the studio with me. It's like, just set up the microphone, set up the tape machine, and and everybody out of the room. Let me just go. Let me do what I what I feel I should do, and then I'll call you in here, and we'll, we'll check it out together. You see if you like it. And I got used to doing it that way for so long that I was pretty much producing myself. The band would come in, and they would like pretty much everything or all of it, or just say, can you fix that? Or maybe you should try that instead. And then I, again, I kicked them out and, and just get it done. So that's kind of where I got my hand, my feet wet as a producer because I was taking care of my own needs and my own uh, items on my own with, without any influence, without anybody looking over my shoulder. And that naturally just led me to knowing and feeling like I could produce other bands or even produce a whole record, not just the, uh, the vocal side. Now, what is it like? I mean, what, do you or do you feel very fulfilled when you create a solo album, or do you also feel a little um, a little antsy because you're not sure how it's going to turn out? Because it's all on you. I mean, how, what, what's the, what's your mind process when you're going through that? I love both. I, I miss I miss the other when I'm doing one of them. When I when I'm doing it all myself and I have full control, full reign of the of the situation. I absolutely revel in it, but then I do miss the other aspects of working and, and tweaking and creating with other people. And then when I'm doing that side of things, I miss the full control thing. So it, it just, it, it's apples and oranges, you know, it, it depends on the day, depends on the album. And um, I, I just, I love having control, but I also love having other people to, to bounce things off. So it just goes both ways. Now, do you sit there and decide, I mean, you know, you've, you've put a bunch of solo albums out. Do you have a, in the back of your mind when you're going to put those solo albums out? Like, there's a few years in between, or is depending on other projects. I mean, what is the whole concept when you sit there and sit down and say, I'm going to do another album? Do you have a time frame? Do you give yourself a deadline? Or do you just sit there and say, okay, I'm going to start doing this, and when I feel it's creatively done, it's done? Um, yeah, no, I, they usually, it's usually planned out based on, uh, necessity or contractual agreements. Um, like Retribution, for instance, it's been five years since I did a solo album and the label actually, we were talking about doing one for, we had, we had a couple ideas of what we wanted to do and wet the other project I'm a part of was one of them. And it was, it was my idea to jump in and say, Hey, you know what? Well, it, it has been five years and it's, the 15th anniversary, which is kind of, I, I just like the number five and the 15, as opposed to saying, well, let's wait a couple of years, and it's been seven years, and 17, uh, 17 years since we've been working together. It's just, it's just a weird number. It just seemed like it would be more formidable to do it now and be able to capitalize on the anniversary side and also to say it's been five years. It's been a long time. Let me go in and do something. And, and the label, they, they absolutely went for it. So with the other records, yeah, we map and plan things out according to when we're supposed to release something. But I don't just, I'm not the type that just sits there and writes just to write. I like to write for an album because you, you, you have to write for the, the moment that you're 
actually piecing up the songs for that particular record. Now, through your years, how has your writing style changed? And has it been, you know, things going on in your own life or things going on, you know, in the, say, a, a social climate? How have you grown as a writer? Because I'm sure you're not the same guy you were 20 years ago or 15 years ago. And, you know, and you see yourself always evolving and it will be different in five or 10 years from now, too. Absolutely. It's, um, it's a good question because in general, you, you, when you're writing and when you're young, you're, you're already writing within the, the, uh, the ideals of what's going on musically around you. You're, you're capitalizing on something, uh, on things that you're listening to already that's, that's happening in the music scene, etc. When you've had a 20 or 30 year career, you've just built, you've built your career on something that worked back then. For you to just keep doing what you did back then, it, it's uh, it could be a one-way street, and it just like you have the blindness on. You're not doing anything new, original, or, or interesting. But it also feels a bit strange to now, 30 years later, be emulating something of somebody that's 30 years younger than you. That just because it's current, that's happening in the scene, it, it feels a little uncomfortable doing that just because that's what's currently happening. So I try to find, uh, I guess. I try to blend the two ideals so that way I, I don't alienate the people that have been following me for so long but I also want I, I want the newer generation to be able to listen to it and go that doesn't sound dated I can actually relate to that as well so that's the hard part in trying to find something that blends the two ideals together of the current and the and the old and the classic and so that's it, it is it's a hard thing to do it's, it's a difficult thing to do and you, you kind of have to watch it because you don't, again, you don't want to alienate the people that do love you for who you are and they've been following you all those years. You don't want to lose them, but you also don't want the younger ones to go, well, that's my father's music or that's my mother's music. You want, you want to be able to relate to them too. Now, who do you think are some of the artists that have really have grown, like USA, your writing has grown? Who are some of the artists that you admire that have done that? Oh, boy. Uh, too many to name. I mean, it's, it's a, it's that's a really difficult one to, to answer because um, oh boy that's it's gonna put me in the spot unless I actually have names in front of me it's all right. of certain bands I was I was just I was just wondering because I always you know people who yeah you know, I love music and I follow music but when you're in music like you are you know you have more of a you have you have more of a concept of of reinventing or not reinventing but developing through the years. I always wonder what the musicians' feedback are. And a lot of times, I guess there is, there's so many, when you're a working musician for all these years, there's, there's probably so many influences. You said earlier, many different influences. So it's probably something that, you know, when you get the question, it's probably hard. So we'll retract that question. <laughs> well, the, the only reason it's difficult is because I'm not, I'm not able, at this point in my life, I'm so busy with my own stuff and so busy with the next steps. When I'm finishing TSO, for instance, I'm, memorizing now lyrics for the Sons of Apollo tour. And while I'm doing the Sons of Apollo tour, I'll, I will be working on new material for Soto. So with all these things that are constantly I'm um, jumping to and from, I don't really have that much time to, to really listen to and follow any bands or listen to what's going on, whether the bands are older or newer. Um, it, it does present itself as a problem because I want to be able to have the time to enjoy the one thing that gives me everything in life and that's music but at the moment my music because 
there's always something coming up and I have to be ready for the next steps. I don't have the leisure of sitting back and listening to an album the, the way I did when I was a kid. I, I can listen to a couple of songs and go, okay, that sounds great. But then I forget about it because I got to get back to work, so to speak. I get, my brain has to focus on the neck, on the big picture. And when you're younger, you just listen to music to no avail. You can listen to your favorite album a hundred times because you just have that kind of time. Time is a factor now. No. That's why that's what I was trying to I was trying to elaborate on your question properly, but the, I couldn't really hone in to something that. I could, I could use as a reference because I'm not really listening to much these days. Right. Now, now the thing is, in your career, you've been in so many different kinds of music. I mean, you ended up on the, uh, the, the, the movie soundtrack for Rockstar. How did that come about? And that was, people loved that movie. I mean, did you get that, I mean, how did that come about? And that was sort of like a super group, which you're now, Sons of Apollo is a super group, but when you played for that band, you know, you're with Zach Wilde and Pilsen and Bonham. How did that come about? And did you know those guys before? I knew all those guys, and they played a big part in in getting me in there uh, when my name came up. And the other, the, the main, the major factor was the producer Tom Warman. I worked with Tom Warman on basically the last five or six albums he did before he went into uh, retirement. It started with Striper. I, I sang on, sang backgrounds on the uh, Against the Law album for Striper, which led to singing backgrounds on the second Steel Heart album. Um, then we did an album called Pariah. We did an album called with Babylon AD. Uh, I sang background on the Lita Ford album that Tom produced. So basically, all those records, I was the go-to guy. And then he retired. He, he just went away. He opened up a, a, bread, a bed and breakfast, and he said, no more to music. Uh, fast forward to 2000, they pulled him out of retirement because they wanted the quintessential rock producer to produce the soundtrack for Rockstar. And so when they were sitting back and saying, okay, he, these are the songs and this is what we need to do, who are the singers you want to bring in? I was one of the guys that Worman said, you know what, I only work with this guy as a backing vocalist. Uh, what do you guys think about bringing Jeff Scott Soto in? And of course, Zach Wilde, all those guys. Jeff was the man, bring him in. And, and it was, I got that validation. So it was great. I, I Already knowing that these guys were vouching for me was just a beautiful thing and and i got that gig now through your career also you've met roger may from queen were you a big freddie mercury fan did he have an influence on you huge huge freddie mercury fan um queen was one of those i guess while i was naming all the bands and all the styles and the things that i was listening to growing up and when i didn't like rock Queen was one of those bands that taught me there are no walls in music. They were, you always hear about the, the master of, um, Jack of all trades, master of one. They were the master of all trades. They could, they could tap into every style of music and make you believe that they were, that they were from that walk of music. They could do a jazz song and they make you believe they're a jazz band. They could do a disco song, a, an opera song, all those different things. And you believe that that's what their influences were. You never once think, well, this is a rock band trying to be an opera band or trying to be a, a blues or disco band. And that, to me, that opened up a whole new world for me as far as the, a vocalist and even as a writer and a producer because I wanted to be able to someday have that catalog, that, that openness, that broadened horizon of music to be able to uh, tap into that someday. And that's what Queen gave to me. 
And now, how was it that you ended up meeting Roger May? And how, I mean, as, as someone who loved the band, that must be something where you're probably so excited that you're almost shaking because you're meeting, you know, such a big influence. How did you end up meeting him? And then you, and you perform with him. How did that all come about? And, when, I mean, how exhilarating was it? Well, it was, it, it's, it's a long story. I'll, I'll try to give you the abridged version. Brian May was just released a second solo record. And I, I heard something that he was, uh, he wasn't going to tour for it because he, he found it a little too, it was a bit difficult for him when he realized he had to sing the entire set as well as play it with queen. He just had to sing a couple songs, some backgrounds and play his guitar. When he was doing a solo thing, he had to sing every song and, and do what he was expected to do as Brian May. Um, so he was not going to tour. And I thought, hmm, wonder if he might be interested in having a singer so he could go on tour. And by having a singer singing all the Queen stuff that he would do in the set and all the, the extracurricular stuff, and then he could sing a couple things from his actual solo records, it might be the best of both worlds. So I, I just went online and I was looking for, this was back in 1999. <laughs> I'm looking for information on how to reach Brian May. There, there was nothing, but I did find, I stumbled across an article, a recent article that the BBC ran that uh, that were talking about Queen were actually looking, or they, were, they thought about looking for a singer and possibly putting the band back together. So that obviously lit me up even more because that's ultimately what I want. I, w- I would love to be able to front Queen. So long story short, I got a hold of uh, somebody who runs the fan club. The fan club, in turn, gave Brian May a, a couple of my songs, including some renditions of me singing Queen. Brian sent me a letter, loved it. He said, the rumors are absolutely not true. Maybe someday we'd work together. Uh, fast forward again, the, the fan club were holding an event for Freddie's birthday party where Brian was making an appearance and invited me, said, would you like to come and sing a couple songs of Brian May? Are you kidding me? Uh, on my own dime, I'll be there with, you know, bells on. Right. So that's where I first met Brian in 99, and we've been lifelong friends ever since. From that, I got to meet Roger Taylor, and, and I got to be more in the infrastructure of their lives. Now, but, uh, unfortunately, the uh, frontman position didn't work out. <laughs> but now, now, what were some of the songs you sang, and was there any ones that you had in your mind that you really wanted to sing? I mean, as a lifelong fan, was there, like... If someone, if they said, hey, you know, you can sing two two Queen songs, which would you want to sing, and which ones did you get to sing? I wanted to do them all, but, uh, I, of course, they chose what they felt would be the, the best ones to do, and we did Dragon Attack, because I actually covered that on a, on my, on a solo one I released a few years previous. Um, I did a cover of Dragon Attack, and then the other one was just, um, I think it was Since You've Been Gone, which wasn't a Queen song, the, uh, yeah, the Rainbow Song, Since You've Been Gone. And that was it. That was my, my first inception to uh, to Brian May's life. And then I got to sing with him when they got to star uh, the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 2001. That's when I got to sing uh, Stone Cold Crazy and, uh, oh, geez, I, I forgot what, what, what other ones we did. But I did a bunch of tunes with him that night as well. See, I mean, that's so awesome, you know, because they, they follow up. And then you ended up with Journey for a while. That must have been, you know, when that happened, it's also you're, you're, you were taking a place. I mean, of originally you were a fan of Stephen Perry. And then you got the, how did the whole Journey thing come about? Well, the Journey thing was a tough one to, to deal with. And I, I, I give it up to, to 
both Steve Jerry and Arnel Pineda, when when a singer of a band to that of that stature of Queen or Journey, et cetera, et cetera, when this singer is still alive, when he's still alive and well and able to sing, but chooses not to, it's a lot harder to for the audience to accept it compared to a situation like Queen, where Freddie Mercury is not coming back. You're never going to be able to see him live again. So the only way to, to see the band Queen ever again is they're going to have to have a, a new frontman. Love it or lump it. Same with ACDC when they, they got Brian Johnson. The only way to continue is with a new singer. When you replace a singer, while the other guy's just sitting at home saying, well, I could step back any moment, that's when the fans don't want to know. That's where it's the hardest situation to step into. So it was it was a brutal 11 months, you know, for people to swallow the fact that Steve Perry wasn't up there, even though he hadn't been up there for eight or nine years anyways when Steve O'Jerry was there. <coughs> you have no idea how many people still to this day will go to a Journey show and go, that doesn't look like Steve Perry. It's just, it's just not paying attention to what's going on in life, what these guys are really doing or not doing. But I, that gig came about because um, I, got, I got a call from Neil Sean to do the band Soul Circus, uh, he had a band with Sammy Hagar called Planet Us, and the thing fell apart when uh, Michael Anthony and Sammy got called back in the band Halen. Neil wanted to continue this project. This was back in 2004. So he'd been reading about me through uh, a bunch of different pages and a bunch of different things. That every time he opened up this particular website, it was always, Jeff Scott Soto this, Jeff Scott Soto that. Say, who is this guy? Everybody's talking about this dude. And, and um, he just looked me up, and I got a call from him telling about this band and we we worked together and we it, we built Soul Circus. It was a, a one-time shop thing. He knew my voice came from that whole journey thing. We obviously through the, through hanging and talking with them and even jamming with them. He knew I knew their entire catalog the same way I knew Queens and Van Halen's. That those are the three bands I could step into tomorrow without without a drop of a hat. I would know exactly what to do with without any lyric sheets. So um when Steve Jerry was having troubles with his voice in 2006, I got the call saying, dude, you might have to come out here and save this tour because uh, Jerry's not able to pull it off. And when I when I finally got that call, uh, it was pretty magical. It was pretty fun. I thought it was going to be a lot longer than it lasted. Unfortunately, it, it, you know, it, it, it ended where it did. But uh, I loved the situation. I was, I was glad to be a part of it. Now, how is you as a, a performer, and you know, and you know, you have to sit there, and in your mind, you have to say, "I'm good," because all these people perform to me. But how do you get back up on the horse? Because it had to be sort of a distant appointment. What do you, what did you do to keep yourself focused to move forward? Because it's something that you know, of course, journey. You think it's going to be, you know, journey, and it, if when it doesn't end up working out, did you get frustrated? Did you get very discouraged, or did you just say, you know what, man? This is just the way that things go, and I just got to get back on the horse because I love music and this is my life. Absolutely. Yeah, of course I was bummed. Of course, it, it, I had the, the rug pulled from under my feet, but th that's part of this business, and thick skin is one of the first things you got to learn in this business. It's You, you really got to be ready for the worst to happen because it will happen. The, the, this business is brutal, and you're, they're, they're basically... Most people don't even care about you and the, the infrastructure of the industry. They, you're only there for the moment, and then there's a, a whole line, thousands, 
waiting to get in that same position. So it's, um, yeah, it's it's unfortunate that you got to deal with these portions of the business, but it's also something that everybody that wants to get into the business should learn because you got to be ready for it. Now, for you, you know, you you, you, sang, you sang a lot of backup for um, for different things. What is it like when you have to sing backup? Because when you're such a powerful frontman like you are and you have a good voice, it, is it hard to contain it? I mean, you have to be a real team player, but I'm sure in your back of your mind sometimes you must be like, I, I just want to go off on this and just bellow it out. No, I love it. To me, backing vocals are almost more fun than seeing lead vocals because there's a there's a craft and there's an art to building backing vocals, to making them sound uh, either choir-esque or to, to use them as the color to the lead vocals in a song. So to me, it's to know and to build and to think about where the background and what the background should actually be like on, on any of these songs. So it, I really love it. It's, it's my forte of singing background. I, I taught myself how to sing harmony vocals with two tape recorders when I was a kid. And when I got the, finally got the chance to do it in a, in a multi-track situation, whether, <clears throat> whether it be in the studio with the old tape format or now with Pro Tools where you just have endless tracks, to me, it's, it's like a kid in a candy store. I love singing backing vocals because I love all the textures and all the different things that you have to do to formulate them. Now, your new, well, your, one of your many projects is Sons of Apollo. And how is that? I mean, because you're coming together with, it's once again, when you said it's like with Trans-Siberian uh, Orchestra, people don't know it or they, they know it and are fanatical. The, the, the other components of that band, you know, Portnoy, people who are musicians know he's an amazing drummer. You know, same with Billy at the bass and uh, Bumblefoot and the other gentleman. How, how is that? How do you guys get together? How did that happen? And did you feel like it was something special? Because when I talked to Mike, he said, this is something that he wants to do a few albums. This isn't like one of these super, just one of these super group one and done, as you said, you were going to do with another uh, artist. How did this come about? And that must be very flattering to be put in the same league with these other people who are, have the talent that you have and are looked at by their peers. Well, dude, in the beginning, I, I, I actually did question myself. I questioned whether I was strong enough, whether I was the right guy, whether I could keep up with these guys. Because like you said, the the level of musicianship you're talking about here, I, these, these guys are at the top of their game. They're at the top of every level of anybody I've ever played with. The, I'm blown away by the level of what these guys have to offer as musicians. And and then I look at myself going, well, maybe 10, 15 years ago, I would have been neck and neck with these guys. But as I'm getting older, my style's changed. Right? I don't I don't hit all those crazy high notes as easily as I used to or sing in a particular range as easily as I used to. And I wonder, am I the right guy for this? And it wasn't until we actually did the very first song together in the studio that gave me that confidence that said, I'm beyond the right guy for this because <clears throat> we all have the same vision of what we want for this band. If I had to, if I had to join dream theater, if this was dream theater, that I was stepping into, I wouldn't be the right guy for the band. If it was Mr. Big, I was joining, I wouldn't be the right guy for the band. And you know what I'm saying? Across the board, where all these guys come from, if I had to join their particular situations, I wouldn't be the guy for those situations. But for this, and knowing what we were formulating and what we were heading for and aiming for, 
I was quintessentially the perfect person for this as far as I was concerned. And luckily on their part, it was the same because, you know, I felt so validated from these guys to, to give me that opportunity and that respect and that trust to be the anchor for the band. How did they find out about you? I mean, they, they knew of you, but how did the, did they, were you, did they sit there? Did Who contacted you? Did one of them say, hey, Jeff, you know. It was all Portland. Yeah, it was all Mike. Okay. This is, let's not mince words here. This is Mike and Derek's baby. They, they've been honing in this thing for the past five years or so. And um, <laughs> it's when they finally realized, when they finally put the timing to, to, to piece it together, I'd just done a South American tour opening up for Winery Dogs with my band Soto. And every night on the side of the stage was Mike Portnoy watching the show. And I'm thinking, because he also knew our bass player, David Z, very well, I'm thinking maybe he's just watching because he really digs the band and everything. But he was really on the side of the stage checking me out. He was he was saying, and he was reporting back to Derek, saying, dude, I think Jeff is our guy. And so he offered me the gig without one note being sung, without hearing me singing on one demo or seeing what it would be like if we all got together, what the chemistry was like. It was all by intuition. He saw me and he said, Jeff is our guy, and I was a guy, and that's it. Done deal. And so, again, I had that pressure of, what if I'm not the guy? What if what I write or how I write doesn't fit in with the, this new format of the, the, all these monsters together? And it just worked. How was the writing sessions? Did you all bring stuff to the table, or how does that work? Because, once again, and you all come from different kinds of music, and, you know, what was what was the... What was the grind like trying to get songs written? It, it started with those guys. They, Derek had a lot of ideas. Uh, when they finally got together with Bumblefoot, they they pretty much wrote the entire record without me. I was on tour with Soto at the time. Otherwise, I would have been part of the writing sessions. Uh, but then again, musically, I'm, I don't want to sit there and tap into that territory. When you have those kind of guys, those kind of players, and the careers that they've had, now... They're putting them together for this this new band. I'm not going to step in and say, hey, can you, why don't you guys change this chord or try this time change over here? I, I'm going to leave that 1,000% to them. So that's exactly what they did. They tracked the record, all the basic tracks, and then I started, the, the, uh, I started getting the songs. They were filtering in, and they started with me letting me just kind of formulate what I felt and heard would fit over those things. Some, of the things, some things were absolutely positively dead set, some things were, that's okay, needs a little work, and some things didn't work at all. But that's the glory of working with the band and, and produce. Now, you get done the album. When I finally did come back to the States, we, we now, now you get done the album, and you now you're going to go on tour. I, I'm not sure. I know. I know. As I said, I know you're playing in Asbury Park. I believe in February. It popped up on my Facebook. I, I may be wrong. Right. Date. But okay. So you, you get done. Now, how do you guys set up for the tour? And you know, where do you choose to play? And what kind of audiences do you expect? Because you know, you have one. There's one CD came out. You know, so how do you right. fill your set do you guys do different from other bands or what is that like and, and when do you start rehearsing with them and is it something that you know once again you're going on stage with four guys who are amazing they think you're amazing so it's like you know a baseball team you can have four all-stars but sometimes it won't click how do you, how is the when's the rehearsing going to start i mean you play it in the studio but how do you put it together for a tour and how do you get prepared for the shows 
Well, we're going to start rehearsing uh, just after the NAM show at, uh, in January. Uh, the NAM show, the, the big trade show that everybody goes to every year in uh, Anaheim, California. And uh, and we're everybody's going to be out there for that. All the guys are going to do their, their things out there with their endorsements and such. And after that's over, we, we got uh, a solid week of rehearsals where we're, we're going to just start picking it all apart and getting the ideas of which songs and... Uh, Clearly, we're going to play the whole record. That's that's a no-brainer. We have to play the whole record, but obviously a whole record's not enough for a full show. So, again, clearly, we're going to tap into other things that would work, aside of solos and solo spots and such. So, yeah, we I know exactly what we're going to be doing. I'm not going to reveal it here because that there goes the element of surprise, but we have discussed what we feel uh, it's going to be necessary to build the show to be entertaining and to be what people expect. Now, for you personally... And, uh, oh, God, I'm sorry. <coughs> yeah, I was going to say, as far as the dates are concerned, there's only been a handful of dates released. And everybody's mocking the fact that that's not a tour. They're, they're out for two weeks. You expect the tour to be for a full year. I was like, people, just calm down. We're not giving you everything up front. We're, there's a lot of stuff that's still being booked. But if you saw my map, if you saw the plan that i would gotten from management your head would spin because it, it, that's how much we're going to be playing all next year. So everybody just wants the information now. I want immediately, I want this information. No, you're going to get it when it's time for us to give it to you. But we will be touring all throughout 2018. Is, is that very exciting for you? I mean, is this something that you're sitting there going, you know, you see that this could be a next, really like a super group that can keep bringing albums out? That was the idea behind it. We didn't want this to be a one-off. We all made the commitment that we're going to do this, you know, all for one, one for all, and that's what. Like me, I didn't want to be part of another situation where I was basically working for somebody else. Um, it, I, I'm already in that situation. I have Trans Siberian Orchestra, which which I love, and I'm, I love that I'm part of it every year. But I do work for somebody else. If I'm going to do something like Sons of Apollo, I wanted I wanted a situation where we all work. For and with each other. Now, what's the difference between your solo projects and your band Soto? Is there any difference between them? Absolutely. Um, my solo stuff is kind of a, an accumulation of all the things that I've uh, that I've done, but also all the things that I've wanted to do that I couldn't do with all the other groups that I've been a part of. So my solo albums vary from the, the funky, soulful R and B. You, you, you'll hear a lot of Prince influence, you'll hear Motown influence, and then you'll hear some of the heavier influences, but you'll all, they all kind of meet in the middle to the more melodic rock influence. The, the hard rock, melodic rock stuff, um, I guess that harkens more to the journey sound, to the, the earlier sound that I was doing uh, <clears throat> before I, I hit it in the, in the metal side of things. Soto is more... Uh, just the heavier side of things. Like Soto, I wanted to, I wanted to have a band that just that focused on the heavier end of my career, and, but not the the earlier days of my career doing heavier music. I'm, I don't want to, I don't want to just do a throwback of the '80s with Soto. I want to do something that's heavy, contemporary, but gives me a chance to do something that doesn't necessarily fit in the mold of uh, the JSS or any of the bands that I've been a part of. I would say Soto probably would be a great band to open up for Sons of Apollo if, if I wasn't in the band. Right. <laughs> because 
musically, I think we, we lean more towards that area. And then earlier you said you're working, you know, after after uh, TSO, then you have the Sons of Apollo tour, but you said you're going to be working on, on a solo album again. What do you, what what are you looking forward to? Soto. What's that? A solo album, yeah. Okay, so I, what, I want, because uh, the last solo album was last year, and obviously we, we, a whole year has gone by without one, and by next year I want to be able to work on another one that maybe comes out in 2019. Now, how did you find the guys for that band? Seeing that the way you've been found for bands, it's been very cool, and you've been with some great bands. Did you find guys that you knew, you've worked with before, but how did you put that band together? Well, uh, Soto was actually my hired gun band for the JSS thing. These guys have been touring with me since 2012. And when I when I did the first Soto album in 2015, it sounded too much like a band. It didn't sound like a solo record, which is one of the reasons why even the manager at the time I was working with, Jeff Scott's Soto album, I can sell it. It, it sounds too much like a band. People are not going to buy this as a solo record. If I sold it as a band name, even if we just use your last name as Soto, it identifies with you. People know it's you, you're the singer, but it sounds more like Dio or Van Halen or you know any the number of bands that are named after the, the singer or, or somebody in the band. So that's why we called it Soto, and I just incorporated the guys that were in my solo band into Soto. Now they're part of a band with a five-way uh, partnership there. So when I do my solo albums, I've now gone backwards and working with the the people that I used to work with in my my other solo albums, which is Howie Simon. That's awesome. You know, I want I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. I know you're on the road, and I mean, it just I just can't imagine doing you know two rock and roll shows. I was looking at your guys' schedule, TSO schedule. So you're doing two shows. I mean, you know, you never hear that. And that must be how does that does that take a, does that take a toll on you? Because you know, you get done the first, you have a great show, no. and you're like. I, they, it takes more of a toll on the musicians because they, they play the entire show. It's a two-and-a-half-hour show that they're on stage for, and then to have to take a little break and go back out and do it again. They're the ones that get more of the toll. The, the whole TSO design regarding the singers was to, to not tire or to not wear anybody out as far as the singers concerned. Uh, there's 10 of us out there. There's 10 singers there. So there, there's no reason why we shouldn't be fresh and killing it every night because I only get, what, two and a half songs to sing lead. They're within a baritone, baritone register, so I'm not really straining my voice. I'm not hurting myself. I'm singing backgrounds on a couple songs. In the end, it's like I'm singing, what, five songs a day. And it, it, imagine if you only had to do five songs a day. You could tour every day without a day off. You could <laughs> just go, go, go. When you're touring with a band like Santo Apollo or Soto or whatever, you're doing anywhere from say 15 to 20 songs a night where you're the only singer, that's what burns you out. There's no burnout factor for us in TSO because we don't sing as much as what you'd have to do in a normal two and a half hour show. Well, that's good. You can save your voice for the Sons of Apollo tour because I know you guys are going to be touring a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, I want to thank you for coming. Exactly. I want to thank you for coming on. People, follow Jeff on Twitter at Jeff Scott Soto. And um, where else can they find out what's going on with you? JeffScottSoto.com and Facebook dot com slash Jeff Scott Soto and you just Google me and you, you can find me all over the internet. <laughs> okay, so people check them out. Also people follow me on Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, CooperTalk.net. I have over six hundred and sixty episodes. You can email me, Cooper, 
at coopertalk.net. And don't forget, it's Christmas time. You get those stocking stuffers. Remember when I had that health problem, I wrote the cookbook. So you can go to stopthesalt.com. It's 120 low-sodium recipes. No pictures to intimidate you. No long list of ingredients. Just easy to stuff to make, and it's healthy. You can get it at Amazon Prime, but if you go to stopthesalt.com, I make more money, and I'll sign it for you. So people, Google Jeff Scott Soto. <laughs> listen to his music. Get the Sons of Apollo. Go see TSO. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, take your vitamins, eat your vegetables, and I'll talk to you guys next week.